We welcome you who are visiting in our midst and are thankful that the Lord has brought you among us. Our heart's desire in this church is that when people we don't know, our friends or family come into our midst, that the Lord may so meet with us that when they leave, they will be able to confess of a surety that God is in this place. It is our commitment and our principled pledge to God by His grace that we be a church that honors God, that seeks the glory of God and not the praise of men. We are a church that understands something of the biblical mandate for maintaining a good conscience before the Lord in obedience to His holy law. And therefore, our church conducts itself with principles and rules of church life that some people think are a bit uh, narrow and a bit legalistic. But we are convinced that God will not get glory from an unholy people who bear His name in public. So our prayer is that the Lord may make you to see among us something that perhaps you've not seen in other places, that perhaps your heart is longed to see if you're a child of God, and that you may go on your way rejoicing when you leave us that the Lord is in this place and His name is being held forth, even though it's in the midst of a congregation of sinners, that God in His grace is magnifying Himself. And we're glad you're in our midst, and we hope that you feel at home with us. We hope that if you're a sinner who is a stranger to grace, that you'll feel enough not at home with us that you'll ask the question, what's the problem? And that God may make you aware that the problem is that you don't know the Savior that we know and that we love and that He may melt your heart in His presence and draw you to Himself. Now what we're doing on Sunday evenings as I'm given opportunity to preach on Sunday nights is preaching through a series of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and three. Now we spent so many months in a survey of the book of Revelation, in a study of this marvelous book of worship and comfort and encouragement and exhortation and stimulation of the people of God who throughout the age of the church have been under pressure and under fire and under trouble and under persecution that they may continue in the faith and endure to the end, and so enduring, be saved. Now, some of what we are preaching in these sermons from the book of Revelation are covering doctrines and principles that we touched upon to varying degrees of emphasis in our survey. But we wanted to focus more intensely on some of these issues and to draw our hearts out to some of the matters that we did not have a chance to deal with in our survey. And one of the things that I was hoping to do in the study of these epistles or these letters to the churches was to lead us in thinking what the church is, what the Lord's will for the church is, and especially how the Lord oversees His beloved, the church, as it is exemplified and illustrated in these seven churches in Asia Minor, in the last portion of the first century A.D. Now, one of the things that I'm thinking that we may well do as we preach through these series is to come into a study of the doctrine of the church growing out of the introductory matters suggested in the preaching of this material. But nonetheless, whether we are able to do that or not, there's much here for us as a church from which to glean 
There's much here that we need, both to stimulate and challenge and rebuke us and to comfort us. My desire tonight is to utilize this second introductory message regarding the letters to the seven churches to comfort you and encourage you in your walk with Christ and in your faith in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Now, the way I want to do it is to focus our attention again tonight on chapter 1. And in those verses, from verse 9 through verse 18, that concentrate on the one in whose hands the seven stars rest. As we studied the last time, the significance of the letters sent to the churches a twofold significance. First of all, their relevance to us. The relevance to us seen in that common conclusion of each letter. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And throughout the epistles to the churches, we hear that reminder. This common conclusion reminds us that the scriptures are spoken by the Spirit of God. And we're to heed what the Spirit says. We're told that all the churches are being addressed by the Spirit. So the address to one church involves and concerns all churches. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then we remembered not to heed the Word of God is to lose it. If God speaks to us. And we either hear it lazily or do not preserve it and conserve it and improve it when we leave the hearing of it. We'll lose it. We're exhorted in Hebrews 2 to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Lest at any time we drift away from them. So it's not that we're to continue to hear just new things. We are to give the more earnest heed to the things we've already heard. Because it is our nature and tendency to drift away from them. And so these letters are relevant to us. As addressed to us by God the Spirit. And in the second place we saw that these letters possess much comfort for us. And that was seen in the somewhat common introduction to the letters I know thy works. The Lord Jesus, the glorious identity of the speaker who said, I know thy works. The high priest of our confession. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God's prophet knows us. But that knowledge is connected with his omniscient awareness of what we are and who we are. And that glorious identity is all tied up in his watch care and his faithful labors for his people. He's a high priest who is faithful in all his house. He's watching over his church for good. Shall he fail? No, because he's who he is. And then we concluded that sermon on the relevance and the significance of these letters to the churches to us. By saying that the entire state of the church, of any church, of any individual in the church of Christ, depends 
upon its view of Christ. That view of Christ concerns a correct doctrine about him and a disciplined meditation upon him. Our state and condition and welfare depends upon what we think of Christ and how well we think it. What we think and how we meditate upon it. So tonight, I want to preach a second introductory sermon on the letters to the churches on the one who holds these seven stars in his hands. The seven stars representing the pastors of the churches. The churches have light, which is represented in the golden lampstands. They have a mission, which is represented in the golden lampstands. Their mission is to proclaim and to guard the truth. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It is the only institution in the world which Jesus Christ founded for the express purpose of guarding the faith once and for all delivered to the saints and proclaiming that faith and seeing that it spreads through the earth. It is the only institution given his deified commandment and promise that he would be with them, that he would support them, that he would uphold them, that he would supply their need and bless them. And it's the only one who received the wonderful promise that against it, the gates of hell would not prevail. Other mission enterprises come and go. Other ingenious, creative ideas of man rise and fall and enter into all sorts of confusion and foolishness. But the true church of Jesus Christ has his promise that he'll never leave her nor forsake her. So I want us to focus upon the one who is sending the letters. The one who's sending these messages to the churches. The one in whose hand are the pastors of the churches representing Christ's authority over the churches and in the churches and carrying out his will for the government of that institution and that organism whose task it is to guard the truth and spread it through the earth. Jesus Christ, King, but not a king like that which eyes had ever seen before. His kingdom is not of this world. He is not present in the body. He is absent in the flesh but present in his body, the church, and oversees it from his high, exalted throne in heaven and rules us by his spirit and word through appointed representatives, as we might say, lieutenants or uh, lieutenant governors under his authority. He's a priest, but not like Aaron. He's without predecessor. He's without successor. He has no end of days, nor does he know any failure. One offering he made, and it is perfected forever them that are sanctified. He's a prophet, but he's superior to all the other prophets, as he himself said, a greater than Jonah is here, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to concentrate on him in these verses. First of all, then, let's read. Verses 9 through 18. Those of you who sat through the Sunday school class will see these as familiar verses. 
others of you, I trust, will see them as precious as well. Verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus, was in the isle which is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamum and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the candlesticks, or the lampstands, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about at the breasts with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, as white wool white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice as the voice of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword, or a broad sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. Let us pray. O Lord, let us now hear not the voice of man, your own voice. Attend us with your spirit in your kindness to your people and feed us upon Christ and his truth for our eternal good and for your eternal glory. Oh God, give help. In Jesus' name. the way I want to lead you in your thinking tonight is by directing your attention to this one verse, verse 18, following upon the kind exhortation of verse 17 when he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, or literally I became dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of hell. I have simply three points in the outline. 
The first is the tender exhortation from our Lord. The second, growing out of that simple first one, the need for the tender exhortation. And the third, the basis of the tender exhortation. The tender exhortation, the need for it, and the basis of it. In the first place, notice the tender exhortation which comes from the Jesus Christ, God's mediator, God's Son, our Lord and Savior. In verse 17, John says, I fell when I saw him. I fell at his feet as one dead. And the Lord touched him. With his right hand, he laid it upon him and said, Fear not. Notice the occasion of John's fear. He saw a vision. The vision was simply a symbolic representation of the glory and the activity of Christ, his king, the head of the church. He heard his voice and he saw a symbolic, majestic picture, a vision of him in great apocalyptic terms. And the result of this occasion of his hearing this voice and seeing the symbols of glory was that he fell at his feet as one dead. Note the aged John in his fear of the glory of Christ. Merely the symbols of the glory of Christ shook him to the ground. Not the full, final, radiant view of him particularly, but as it were in symbolic presentation. And that alone, enough to smite him to the ground as one dead. It's one of the reasons that we take a dim view of those around us who speak so much of their visions of Jesus with such an easy, flippant, and light air and attitude and look so forward to seeing new visions of the Lord. It's one of the reasons we abominate in our thinking the very blasphemous suggestion that the Lord Jesus would show up on a door of a hospital room in, in the outlines of oak and wood and that we may see something of the glory of Christ in that sort of thing. It's one of the reasons that we don't trust that sort of testimony because we expect that when men would see the glorious Christ exalted, something more would happen to them than running around to the nearest journalist to get it recorded in the paper. We expect them to fall at his feet as one dead. We expect them to experience something of Isaiah's experience when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He said, woe is me. And then began to confess the depth of his sin and his uncleanness. 
Here's John, the beloved apostle. The one who was next to the Lord reclining at supper that last evening. And you remember that the custom was to recline at meal. And John was the one who was nearest the breast of the Lord. He was on the head end of the Lord. He was next to the Lord. It may be that they were reclining in opposite directions, one left-handed and one right-handed, lying toward each other, so that John was right next to the ear of Christ at the table when he whispered and said, Lord, is it I? That's probably the picture. He leaned on Christ's breast. He reclined on that side. Rather than at the feet. That was where John was. And many times we read in the Gospels. When the Lord did something significant. Like the healing of Jairus' daughter. The raising from the dead. He took Peter. And James. And John. And only them among the apostles with him. On the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John. The disciple whom Jesus loved. The loved disciple, as many have called him. Here's a man that was tenderly, intimately close to the Lord Jesus. When he wrote his first epistle, he said, We, concerning the word of life, have touched it, handled it. We're in fellowship with him and with the Father. This man knew something, especially by the time of his great age, at the end of the century, of the intimate sweetness of communion with the Lord Jesus. He had seen Him in His humiliation. He had seen Him in His resurrection. He had seen Him ascend and disappear in the clouds. But nothing like this. After all the century of this man's preaching the gospel of love and grace, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, the apostle who knew so much about the fathering of God to his people, the shepherding of Christ over his sheep, those tender passages growing out of this man's writings toward the end of the century. Look what happened to him when he saw the Lord in his glorious symbolism. He fell at his feet as one dead. The Lord interprets it as fear. The man's afraid. We may almost say scared to death. Now you would think that John would not respond that way. He's been an experienced, mature man of the gospel. He understands the nature of Christ in his tender-hearted forgiveness of his sheep. But look at him at his feet as one dead. The tendency... At such a spectacle is for us to forget the grace of justification and adoption and all those sweet and wonderful benefits that come to us after we've run into Christ. For a moment, this man lost all that and all he could do was fall at his feet as one dead. The sweetness of communion was not what was paramount in this man's consciousness. He was scared. He couldn't stand. He couldn't look. He was struck. Perhaps we need a bit of that among us. Perhaps not a glorious vision in the front of the church, but 
perhaps somehow in the Spirit of God when we hear the preaching of the Word and sing the hymns of the faith and pray the prayers of God's people, we may need something of God's presence that will scare us and make us afraid when we walk out the doors after a service to say anything other than things that would edify. It would make us afraid to show any look on our face that might disturb the holy atmosphere that God has created. Brethren, a pastor's heart to you. We can manage your outward behavior in this church to some degree. We can set rules of worship. We can tell you when to settle into the seats and get quiet. We can tell you how the children are to act in church. And you've been obedient throughout the years at each stage of our exhortation and teaching. But we can't make it stick. And we can't make it come naturally. And we can't make it happen till you're self-motivated. So that when you come, you come already with that spirit. We can only remind you and remind you and exhort you and warn you and plead with you. And we can conform you a good bit in the public externals of true reformation. So that when some come to visit, they look and they say, That church worships with an order that I've not seen. Their children are quiet and attentive. The people are sober. We can accomplish that simply by the enforcement of good worship rule. But it takes the fear of God on your conscience for you to bring that unsolicited. For you to sense that unevoked. For that to come out of your heart so that not only do they say these people are different in the way they worship. That they walk away and actually say God is here. You see it's not enough to have it in order. So somebody looks and says that's orderly. That's required. But it's not enough. God must be here. And when he is here. In his spiritual fullness, there will be a measure of fear among his people that will have an immediate and lasting effect upon their words and their thoughts and their faces and their conduct. And if that occurs every Lord's Day, in the morning and in the evening, and on Wednesdays when they gather to pray, For several months in a row, the church will take on a characteristic of a holy people. People will note it. It won't be somber. There will be a kind of joy that will begin to exude out of that. There will be a liberty that will grow out of that because in God's presence there's peace. But sometimes to get to that, you've got to go through the dead. You've got to go through the scared, the fear. I pray, though I don't understand very much about what it'll be like, I pray God will grant something of that to us increasingly over the years. I'm discouraged and distressed when I don't feel it and when I see that you don't feel it. I'm not satisfied when I go home at the end of a Lord's Day and there's been the sense that nothing really happened to us except we preached we prayed we sang it was good and we went home 
I want it to be more than that. I want us to be walking in the fear of Christ all the time. I want that for myself. I want it for my wife. I want it for my children. I want it for my church and your wives and your children. And I'll not be satisfied until I have it, until God gives it. But the Lord gives a tender exhortation to this man who has fallen at his feet as one dead. He has seen the glory of Christ. Look at it. He's seen something in symbolic form of the eternal majesty of Christ. Notice in verse 14, his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. Majesty, penetrating purity, separate holiness. He's seen it and it's frightened him. He's also seen the omniscient oversight of Christ. His eyes were a flame of fire. These are not eyes you can deflect when they set their burning gaze upon you. You don't get away from the hound of heaven, brethren. You can get away from everybody else, but not this one. Those eyes are as a burning flame. And once the Lord sets his eye upon you to pursue you to righteousness, you shall be pursued to righteousness. As one of my brethren recently said, when God begins to make inquisition for blood. Watch out. He sees it. And when he sets his eyes to, rem to mark it, you don't get away. Well, he saw that. The omniscient oversight of Jesus Christ. And it smote him. And then he saw the omnipotent holy providence of Christ. In verse 15. His feet like unto burnished brass as if it had been refined in a furnace. And his voice as the voice of many waters. This man trods out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And as he steps through the history of man, nothing gets in his way and halts his step or hinders his progress. This man's voice, the voice of many waters, shakes the earth. And when he speaks, wall must listen. In his conduct of the affairs of man, he issues decrees and they obey. Even unwillingly, they obey. His voice covers the universe. His feet step where they will. And if you get in the way, they crush you. They stamp out everything that would hinder the progress of his kingdom. This is who John saw in his glory. He also saw him in his unapproachable holiness. Unapproachable holiness. His countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. Now you get a picture of the sun shining in its strength. 
93 million miles away, you stare at the sun at noonday for a bit. You best not do that. Hurt your eyes. Can do permanent damage to your eyes. You're not even allowed to watch an eclipse. It can blind you over the years. You can't even bear to look straight into the sun. Because its strength is too big. What did John have in nature to compare with what he saw in the strength of the shining of Jesus Christ? Well, the one thing he could think of that you man can't stand to look at is the sun. The unapproachable holiness of God. We do all long to look upon his face one day. But brethren, we're going to need much grace and much help in transforming what we are to be able to look upon him and live. In our present state, we could never look upon him and live. John looked at his beloved friend and Savior and fell at his feet as one dead. He saw him in his activity in the midst of the church's walking upholding his authority in the churches, the stars in his hand, ministering his piercing word. Out of his mouth proceeded a sharp broadsword, meaning a sword of war. Out of his mouth comes words that defeat and devour his enemies. And leave a trail of blood behind him so that by chapter 19, the picture is that his vestment is dipped, as it were, in the blood of his enemies. That's what John saw. And it brought him down. Well, brethren, that's not surprising. We often tend to fear the very thing that is our salvation. Did you catch that? What is it that John is fearing here? He's fearing the very things that w without which he cannot be saved. The one who tramples his enemies down. The one who judges righteously. And when he sees one of his children in Christ, he judges him guiltless and justified. And he sees an enemy out of Christ and he condemns him. And protects his saints. As we heard in the sermon yesterday, he sets the solitary in families, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. He brings the prisoners into prosperity. He gives to the poor, but he withdraws from the rich. He exalts those of low degree, and he brings down those of high degree. At the very outset of the gospel, in the early testimonies in Luke, we give, hear those songs of praise to him who brings up the low and brings down the high. The Lord Jesus Christ has appeared to John, and John's afraid. But in the, in the mind of one writer, he's fearing his mercy. Remember Jacob? Very distressed about the providence of having to go to Egypt to get food. And his son Joseph, over in Egypt, he's still thinking he's dead. He doesn't understand why God's brought it to this place. And then he doesn't understand why he has to go down to Egypt himself and why he has to go to get his little boy back whom his, his younger son is kept as a ransom in order to get his daddy and to make sure daddy's still alive. 
He feared and despaired at the face of saving providence. God had a good thing in mind for Jacob. Jacob didn't see it and he didn't want to do it. It Scared him to go to Egypt. Remember the captives in Babylon. Hang their harps on the willows. But you see, they were distressed and discouraged. But God was using the exile to purify his people. In fact, to secure the promises he'd made to the world. That in the seed of Abraham, the world would be blessed. And had he left them in Palestine under their condition, they would have been abolished. God could not continue to bring them up to the time of the fullness of time when Messiah could be born in them had he left them the way they were in their idolatries under Manasseh and his children. God saving his people through the exile by burning off the dross so they can endure another 400 years till the Lord comes. But they didn't see it that way. Even the disciples... After the cross. In fact, after the resurrection. Remember in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, downcast and distressed. Why are you downcast? Because you who must have been living alone in Jerusalem. You, you rooming by yourself, they said. You, you living alone in this. You hadn't heard what's going on. We had hoped that this man Jesus, who was a prophet mighty in word and deed before God and the people, was the one who was going to deliver Israel. We had hoped. But alas, they killed him. And besides all that, our women have said, he's not in the tomb, but he is nowhere to be found. And the Lord said, Oh, you slow of heart to believe all the things written. You see, they were despairing in the very event that saved them from their sins. He, they killed him. Rats, they killed him. Alas, they killed him. Oh, tragedy of tragedies, they killed my Lord. Oh, no, no. This is the triumph of the glory of Christ. This is the promise. This is the prophets fulfilled. This is your salvation. Fear not. Despair not. Often we miss the very essence of our salvation. Well, something of this perhaps was happening in John's heart. So the Lord gives the tender exhortation. Fear not. Out of that notice the need for this exhortation. And it's an exhortation that comes not only to the apostle, but to those with whom he is a fellow partaker in the patience and the tribulation and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's never been a time, brethren, in which the true subjects of the kingdom of Christ have not been partakers in tribulation and trial and conflict. If there's ever been a dream in your mind that there's to be an era in the church's history in which she's not to be troubled and persecuted and problem-filled, then the dream must be snuffed out in the light of Holy Scripture. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of heaven, we're told. If we would reign with him, we must suffer with him. These trials and these conflicts and these tribulations, which are typical of the entire church age, 
demand patient endurance and steadfastness. And they solicit from these people of God an earnest longing for the Savior's return in triumph and deliverance, in His power and grace. But you see, in the midst of this world, it is a proneness of ours to fear. See, the immediate cause of John's fear is not the persecution, but that makes us fear. The immediate cause of his fear is the glory of Christ unveiled to his vision. We are told, fear not them who can destroy the body. Rather fear him who can destroy the body and soul in hell. But now you think about that a minute. It's pretty difficult not to fear those that can destroy the body, isn't it? I mean, isn't that really what it boils down to when we walk scared? We're scared we're going to get killed. If you ever overcome the fear of death, nothing can scare you, brethren. I mean, that's the worst thing that can happen. And if you get over the worst thing, then the lesser things shouldn't carry too, too much weight with you. Not in comparison. We don't like it when the economy starts falling apart. It threatens our livelihood, our comfort, our health, our food. In our country, it mostly just threatens our vacation. And we get all worried about that. But in God's providence, sometimes we're scared. The Lord says, don't fear them who really can destroy the body. Disease and pestilence, war... Injustice in the courts can take children away from godly parents and put them in a ward. Can take people from their homes and stick them in jail for nothing other than preaching the truth of God. They're considered in some nations in our world as being insane for believing there's a God. So they're carried away and socialized. You ever hear that word? If you don't keep your children in the school system, they're, not, you know, they're going to miss socialization. The Soviet Union is a master at socialization. They orient you to be able to fit in with your society. And anybody in our society that believes in God, they say, is you haven't grown up. We'll help you. We'll reorient you. Let's go over to this orientation center for however long it takes. And as one young man was quoted as saying to a tour group when he asked, what if he doesn't get oriented? Well, then we reorient him. But what if he doesn't get reoriented? Well, we orient him again. You see, the world can really do bad things to you. And they can kill you. They can kill you in all sorts of ways. Because they refuse to expunge the evil from the culture, they can kill you with a blood transfusion while trying to do you good. There are a lot of things to fear. But we're told not to fear those things, but to fear Him who can do more than just kill the body. But that can destroy the body and the soul in hell. And yet the Lord looks at John and by him the church and says, 
Fear not. Fear not. We need, brethren, to hear that sound. Fear not. We need to hear the Lord say, don't fear those that can kill the body. Don't fear the beast and his kingdom who cuts. Don't fear them that babble against you with their tongues, who ostracize you at work and at school. Don't let it make you fear. And in this text, don't even fear me, the Lord says. You see, this is the Lord's comforting, tender exhortation, fear not, to a man whose fear is not at the roaring of the seas or the pestilence or the persecutor, but who's afraid of Christ. And it's indeed a tender exhortation. If you don't have to fear Christ, brethren, you don't have to fear anybody. But on what basis does the Lord make this tender exhortation? There is a good sound foundation on which he builds this exhortation. He says, fear not. And then he makes some statements that would help us not to fear. Fear not, in verse 17, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. The basis of this tender exhortation is threefold. First, the glorious person of our Lord. Second, the triumphant work of our Lord. And third, the supreme position of our Lord. In the first place, the basis of his tender exhortation to John and to us to fear not is rooted in his glorious person. In the very thing that brought the fear is the thing that removes the fear. Fear not what you've seen. Let me interpret it for you. I am. What does that mean? Well, we said it earlier. We've said it repeatedly. He's God. Why don't you need to fear me? Yahweh. Jehovah. I'm God. What God? I'm the God of covenant mercies. I'm the God of my people. I'm the God pledged to their salvation. I'm the God who knows them inside and out and has known them from eternity to eternity. And I change not. And I have set my almighty self for you on your behalf, in your defense. Fear not. You're looking at God, John. I'm God. I want to focus on three aspects of this. He is the author and the finisher of all things. That's God. The I am means the eternal God. The author and the finisher. The beginning and the end. He's the author and finisher of creation, of providence, and of redemption or grace. In other words, all the categories of reality. He's it. 
turn to Hebrews chapter 1 for a summary text that includes all three of these facets of our history. Creation, providence, and grace or redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of all of it. It's all in his hands. Hebrews chapter 1. The glorious display of the superiority of Christ as the mediator of God's covenant and his elect. Verse 1. God, having of old time spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by diverse portions and in diverse manners, has at the end of these days spoken unto us in Son, or in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. And then notice, through whom also He made the worlds, who, being the effulgence of His glory and the very image of His substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Remember the voice of many waters? The word of his power by which he upholds all things. When he had made purification for sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You see it all summarized there? Good introductory material for the book of Hebrews. Summarizes Christ, through whom the worlds were made. Who, by his hands, upholds everything and keeps it functioning. According to the original plan in which he created it. He made it for a purpose. And it's in his hands. And he carries out that purpose. That's providence. With a capital P. And third, his rule first and last of grace. Look what he did. He, in verse 3, when he had made purification. In other words, completed, finished work of redemption accomplished at the cross. One sacrifice for all, never to be repeated, unrepeatable, not to be re-dramatized in worship in some form of, of magic, It's once unique, glorious, done. Our salvation is done. Our justification is set. And yet, the salvation still continues on and there's more to be done. So what did he do? When he had done that and finished the act of the accomplishment of our redemption, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's he doing there? Well, he's saving to the uttermost those who come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. You see the beginning of their salvation? He made them. He rules over all the events of life to bring them to the point of their redemption and the application of that redemption. Then he is seated at the right hand of the Father, from which he sends the Spirit without measure to apply what he's accomplished unto its perfect end and unto its consummation as the Son of God who sits at the right hand of God, almighty, finally and perfectly to accomplish everything he intended when he first made us, while he's been keeping us, and when he saved us. I am. 
That's who I am. Fear not. You see, when you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe on Jehovah. Your life is in His hands. I don't know where else you'd want it. Some of us live frantically trying to be in anybody's hands but His. Sometimes Christians forget their mercy. And they want men to save them. Men can't save you. They're so scared God's not going to vindicate them. They want to make sure everybody else knows they're okay. Get to God. If you're running to men, you best fear. But if you're running to Jesus Christ, fear not. Now you see, the very thing that strikes fear into our hearts, the glory of Christ as God, is the same thing that tells us not to fear. Fear not, I am. You see the point? Apparently, John, for a moment, only got one angle here. Yes, this is holy God. But I'm the I am God who made you. Who holds you up in my hands. You see that Colossians says in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. And by him all things consist or hold together. The Bible doctrine of the deity of Christ. No question about it in the Bible if you believe the Bible. It's not a, it's not a moot point and it's not a debatable point. It's set. This is God. The firstborn of creation. Notice it says in Revelation that, behold, I'm alive forevermore. See, I became dead. I'm alive forevermore. What's he alive doing? He's managing providence. He's directing history. He's handling the affairs of the world. Unto what end? Unto the consummation of his glorious righteousness. All men are going to bow the knee to him, and every tongue's going to confess to him, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, and all the universe is going to give God the praise due it. And he sits in the place, in the only place in which you can make sure those things are going to happen at the right hand of the majesty on high. Brethren, if you want to see to it that your history is taken care of, you get your history at the right hand of the majesty on high. You want your family to be in good hands, you put them into the hands of the one on the throne. You want your own health, your own future, your own life, your own career, everything, you want it in good hands, who can really do something about it. You want your life in a place in which when you pray, that life is affected by what you pray and you have some destiny, some control of your destiny. Get your life at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, that's what we're told in Colossians 3. Set not your affection on things below, but on things above. Where? Where Christ is seated. For your life is hid with Christ. And oh, what comfort and deliverance from fear it is for those of us who have put our lives there. And are content to have them sit there. The very thing that scares us when we're sinning against God that he's almighty and he's omniscient. The thing that makes us run from him in the garden of our sin and hide behind the tree from him is the same thing that gives us comfort and, and deliverance when we believe him. You see, that's the same God. It's like the same sun that warms a plant and gives it fruit. 
and he burns the grass. Same sun, same heat. Sun just sits there, doing the same thing all the time. And as one of my friends in college used to say, the fires of life either burn us bitter black or make us pure gold. I guess it's all in the response, isn't it? Somewhere it's in the heart. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in Him. All things are made by Him and through Him. All things by Him consist. All nature works in harmony with Him because He created it. In our family and in our Homeschool, we're teaching our children normally, instead of using the term nature, use the term creation. Not because there's anything wrong with the word nature, but we want to keep contemplating in their thoughts that nature is nothing other than what God made. We want them to think of God. We don't necessarily talk about natural science as much as creation knowledge, real science, knowledge not falsely so called. Well, God. The Lord Jesus made it all, and it all works in harmony with Him and His purposes. His purposes meaning His own good and the good of those who love Him. And that's how all things are working together for the good to those that love the Lord. Because He's the one that set it as His purpose. Now, if He's somehow out of control of it, as the deist who founded, some of the deists who founded this nation believe that God is backed off and wound up like a clock, the universe, and it's sort of winding down on its own, and God's not somebody directly who's involved in it, like the old Epicureans in Greece, whose philosophy got into American politics early on, then really, why pray? People ask us Calvinists, well, now, if you believe God's absolutely sovereign and he's predestined everything that has ever going to come to pass, why pray? And our response is, biblically, if you don't believe that, why pray? If you believe God's in control of everything and whatever God wills, he's going to do it, why pray? Well, brethren, what's the point of praying if God's not in control? Well, that, it sounds funny, but that's the point. I'm not trying to be funny. But you see the point, the, 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 the logic of Scripture. To whom are you addressing your prayers? And you see, I think there's a subtle, they catch themselves. It may reveal they're really not praying. They may be going through a religious exercise that impresses their friends, but they might not in their own mind be talking to God at all. They might not even be thinking they're addressing someone who's utterly upon whom they're dependent. They're saying prayers to influence whatever God's thoughts are, but they fully intend to save whatever sinners God needs saved with their magic evangelistic enterprise or their money or their eloquence or whatever. I was a member of a denomination. Many of its representatives used to say things like, if God's going to do it, he's got to use us. Or, we have the programs that will reach the world. And I looked throughout the book of Acts for some evidence of the program that will reach the world. And all I see is prayer and preaching. Preaching and prayer in the context of an obedient people. Well, we're worshiping Jesus Christ who controls creation and providence. All the movements of man and animals and inanimate creation, they originate in His will. 
They move by his design and they end in his glory. That's providence. Empires are erected. Empires are brought down. Sparrows fall. Not a sparrow falls. The Lord says this. Not a sparrow falls without my father. He didn't say precisely. Not a sparrow falls without my father's knowledge. He said not a sparrow falls without my father. In other words. My father has a direct effect on the fall. My father's the one that ultimately brought him down. Knows why I needed to bring him down. Did the right thing at the right time. Don't be upset when things happen like that. They're in the hands of God. Brethren, may I say it without hurting any tender feelings in here. When a loved one dies, God did it. Get your theology straight. Don't swallow the line of those that don't trust God who say, if anything bad happens, it's the devil. God never does anything negative. Well, I don't know what you mean by negative. And in one sense, I suppose that's true. But if you mean God doesn't make people sick, read your Bible. He sends boils on folks. He sends plagues on people. He kills the son of David in direct response to David's sin. Or God doesn't kill people. It's not God's will that any people die. Well, whose will is it? Who got God's will and stole it? God originally was the only one that determined anything that happened before there was a universe. What changed when he made the universe? Nothing. He didn't create something that is now advanced beyond him. He's God. Everything works in his hands. All the calamities of the earth, the rolling waves, the falling mountains, the unrolling skies, the quaking earth. Disasters, tragedies, pestilences, famines, death, pain, all the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In whose hands are they? The hands of him who alone is worthy to unlock the seals. What are the seals? History. The seals of history. Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has in his own hands the right to conduct the affairs of history. And when you see all this stuff unveiled in Revelation, all this symbolic chaos that brings men's hearts into fear. And the Lord said, men's hearts will fail them for fear when they see the things coming on the earth. Who sends those things? The one who has the seals and who opens the seals. The only one worthy. History is in Jesus' hands. All these things are just His mighty voice of many waters. Just his feet of burning brass stomping out everything which resists reposes his kingdom and its goals. They are the outpouring merely of him who alone has the right to conduct the affairs of history. Creation and providence are in the hands of him who is the author and finisher of all things. And finally, in the hands of him who is the author and finisher of our salvation, of our faith. Creation and providence and grace in the hands of the I Am who smote John with fear to the ground and then touched him with his right hand and said, Fear not. I am the one who purposed in the original designs of heaven. I purposed with my Father and struck a plan with my Father from eternity. All wrought in my own blood. A covenant, an eternal covenant by which God, the triune God, 
has entered into a purposed plan and a pledged purpose to save a multitude of sinners which no man can number. Fear not. I'm the one who planned it to save the church from her troubles, her sins. As the psalmist says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. That's the saving God. And the Lord says, I from eternity am the one that planned this. You see me standing in power and glory over the affairs of creation and over the affairs of the conduct of history. What am I working with history to to accomplish? What is history doing? What am I making all the kingdoms produce? What's growing out of all my providences? The saving of my people. All things are worked together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to His purpose. And the emphasis of that text is primarily focused upon the reality that all history is working together to produce a multitude of sinners one day surrounding the throne of grace saying, Holy, 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 Salvation! To the Lord our God. Glory and honor and blessing and praise to the Lamb that was slain. That's the purpose for all of it. It's where it's all headed. It's where it's all going to end up. Nothing's going to stop it. The devil's not going to stop it. He's going to the lake of fire. Bad religion's not going to stop it. Your sins are not going to stop it. I'll tell you what. I got the devil straightened out pretty soon when I read all this stuff. I said, yeah, the devil's been defeated. You don't have to be too afraid of him. I got the world pretty straightened out. I said, well, anybody that's had enough experience with the world has already learned that it's not worth it. I can pretty much handle that. I, I'm smart enough now by experience just to know that if I, I'd have to be a fool to go back into the world because I've tried that. I'm not saying I'm not vulnerable to those things, but those things were a little bit easier to figure out and get settled in my theology. But when I started dealing with my own sin, that got me. Because I couldn't see how I could get away from that. Because even when I shut the world out, and when I thought the devil was got, I had my heart. I go to prayer, and I sin in my prayer. I read my Bible, and I sin. My verses are translated in my perverted mind into condemning other people and setting myself free. I use the Bible to point fingers at others. I look at my Bible and my heart gets perverted and wicked even while I read God's precious holy word. Lord, I don't know. You may be able to get the devil and you may be able to conquer the world, but what about what's in here? My best is rotten. I guess I'm going to lose out after all. Why keep it up? I mean, on the, on the, in the wake of my best hours of bliss with Christ, I blow it. Sunday nights are one of the hardest times on the way home from church. After Christ has met with me and his people. And by Monday morning, it's not unusual for me to discover how quickly I'm allowing things to pass. I've had to learn through the years to be on my best toes and my best defense right after the best blessings. Some of you by Tuesday morning have already forgotten any good thing you felt on Sunday, haven't you? You know why? You're not handling Sunday night and Monday morning right. 
You're not conserving what you've got planted in you. You've got old bad habits that you're still doing and you haven't connected those habits to bad experiences yet. Well, the Lord Jesus purposed to save his people. He's the author of their faith. He accomplished it in his own body on the tree. He came in the fullness of time, just right, just the right time in history. He died on his own terms. He gave up his own spirit. He laid his life down. No man took it from him. And he bruised the head of Satan just on schedule. And then he sits at the throne faithfully applying to us by his spirit whom he gives without measure to his people. All that for which he purposed and which he died to accomplish. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Brethren, what Jesus Christ has begun in his people, he will perform it until the last day. He'll not fail. He'll perform it. And what I believe I will do is I will stop there and in the Lord, the Lord willing, the next time, take up the last two rationale bases for his statement of tender exhortation, fear not, his work and his position. I just want to ask you this. Do you desire that history rest in the hands of Jesus Christ? Are you content with that? Are you happy with that? Does that fill you with dread? Because you're not right with him? Does it fill you with anger because you had a few things you'd like to accomplish that he may not allow because it would thwart his own purpose? Do you have an agenda for your own life that might contradict or counteract his agenda for his own glory? Are your motives for you or for him? Have you gotten it settled in your heart that the reason God made you is to glorify him and enjoy him forever? And are you glad to have it so? I mean, is that settled so that your days are spent thinking about how you can accomplish that and you're grieved when you don't and you revolve your whole life around that image and that purpose and that destiny? Well, obviously, if you're saved, you've gotten that settled. Do you like the fact that no one will escape his judgment? That he sees everything with his eyes burning with flame? That he rules everything from the right hand of the majesty on high? That he will one day have his perfect will in, on earth as it is in heaven? Well, if that's the case, and if you love it that way, fear not. Fear not. You're in good hands. Fear not. Stop the fearing. Stop it. Some of you look at yourselves. What kind of impression are you giving the people that know you best? When the crisis comes, what's your knee-jerk reaction? Does it reflect something of a cultivated fear not? Or have you made no progress yet because you've not sat and meditated on who this is whom you've seen and been made to love? Do you despise his rule? Do you dread his ways and don't like them? When he makes a sparrow fall, do you get mad at it? Some people get mad at God when their pet dog dies. 
Some people get mad at God when they lose a bank account. Some people get mad at God for all kinds of foolish reasons of things that leave that are, that are passing anyway. Some get people live mad at God in His providence. He gave them a raw deal. They, their parents were the wrong kind of people. Their wife or their husband, God messed up. Why didn't He spare me from that? Why didn't He save me earlier so I didn't get messed up in my marriage? Or maybe He didn't give them a husband or a wife. Some people live with an undercurrent of anger against God. And it comes out in little ways. It just spills over. Little snappy words. Little bitter biting remarks. They pick on themselves. They pick on people because they're mad at God. In our whole culture, did you know that one of the primary causes of deep depression and chronic depression is that people have turned in upon themselves their anger against God. They're trying to kill God. And the last thing they can do is kill the creation of God. And since they've lost their moral fortitude, they can't bring themselves to kill anybody else. So they sometimes put themselves out of commission as a last act of defiance against God and His image. I didn't say that's the only reason. I just said that's one of the leading causes of some of this unexplained, deep, chronic depression. Well, let me tell you, if you despise it to be this way, if you don't like the Lord's decisions, and if you don't like His providences, and if you don't like his rule and his ways, then you cannot receive the words, fear not. You fear. Maybe you don't like his law. Maybe some interpretation of his law, some exegesis of his law is bugging you. Maybe some prophet of God has brought the thing down to your conscience and you don't like it. There are people in this room, I'm convinced there are people in this room who still don't have a Sabbath day issue settled. Your children are watching you do things on Sunday afternoon that do not look like a person that believes it's God's day. Looks like your day. Not to your kids it does. And you have to dance around to explain how the Bible doesn't really mean what it says in this case. Because they'll ask, won't they? You get to a place, you have to start telling your kids what they shouldn't tell anybody else in the church goes on in your house because somebody else will catch you. Then you start defending yourself at every point and dancing around through it, through, running through hoops. All you have to do is confess your sin and obey Christ. A lot simpler. Well, it is. I didn't say it's easy. I just said it's simpler. Where do you belong on the Lord's Day? Here or doing your work someplace? What are you supposed to be doing on God's day? You're supposed to be going doing God's things, talking God's words, enjoying God's pleasures. Get it settled, brethren. Get it settled. Or fear. Well, God help us. In a struggling, persecuted, difficult day, God help us to receive the tender exhortation. Fear not. I am God set for your salvation. Brethren, that ought to evoke praise and gratitude and peace in our hearts. I pray it will happen in every soul in this place. May God give us an open ear and a hearing heart and a seeing eye with his truth. Let's pray. Our Father, you've given to me a dear church who love to hear your word. You've given to this church many good things. 
You've been patient with us. You've been faithful to us. And tonight again, you've comforted our hearts with the truth. Things that some years back we never thought of. Today are the joy of our hearts. This is a marvelous thing, O Lord, and we we praise you and thank you that you had compassion on us and let us have these things. Our Father, we pray that you would burn the word of Christ into our hearts and that you would free us from our resistance to his lordship and that you would make us content and happy with him as he is, that we may glorify you and indeed enjoy you forever. Bless your word to the heart of your people. And hear our prayer through Jesus Christ, our exalted King and Savior. Amen.